is depression funny? I feel like the right answer to this is supposed to be yes. My answer to it is no, um, because I don't like to give depression any credit for the things that I find funny when I talk about depression. There's no right or wrong answer. <laughs> God goes in to see a doc, says there's something wrong with me. I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. On this program, I interview people who are funny and who have dealt with depression. They have interesting stories to tell, and the humor helps. On this episode, the story of someone becoming who she truly is with the help of resiliency, intelligence, television, bold career swerves, and medical science. And it only takes a lifetime. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm a pop culture correspondent at NPR, and I'm in a booth at uh, NPR headquarters. In Washington, D.C.? In Washington, D.C., yeah. Linda Holmes is the host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. It's NPR, but without the serious, pensive tone that so many people associate with NPR. It's pretty much Linda and her friends having fun and talking pop culture, movies, music, TV. Here's a clip from the show. Linda and guests are talking about the movie Lady Bird. There is such a heavy, interesting, thoughtful family story here. But there is also, I think, such a blessedly not that complicated story about her discovering how just disappointing teenage boys can often feel when you are a teenage <laughs> girl. teenage, and I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> because there are essentially two guys in this movie that she's interested in, and it's not a single through line. Mm-hmm. It's not a through line of, like, she meets these two guys and she has to decide which one she likes right. or something like that. There's a story with one. There's a story with the other one. Mm-hmm. The one played by Lucas Hedges is a, a guy she meets through being a theater geek, mm-hmm. because I think that's one of the best aspects of the character, as Aisha mentioned, is that she's a theater kid. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is this... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell that this is the guy that I wasted all my time on because I totally. reacted oh, so, totally. so powerfully to him. <laughs> like, you first see him, like, hanging out, reading a copy of Howard Zinn's the People's History of the United States. And he's halfway through. He's, like, really reading it. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, Sitting on the back of a BMW talking about how much he... I'm just not really into money. Linda's been dealing with depression for many decades. Her story may sound familiar in some ways to others that you've heard on this show, but there are several twists that are unique, both in her obstacles and her solutions to them. Linda Holmes grew up outside Philadelphia, watching plenty of TV, but not limiting herself to just that. I also read a lot when I was a kid. Um, I remember when I was in fifth grade, I remember the librarian at our school gave me um, a copy of Rebecca and said, you should read this. I think you would like it. And uh, I read that. And so that was kind of when I started reading big, fat novels. So I read Gone with the Wind right after that. And I started reading a lot of like Stephen King. And I read a lot of, you know, by the time I was in high school, I read a lot of Jackie Collins and things like that. So I think... I think I read a lot of kind of popular fiction by the time I got out of school. But I also really loved, you know, I love TV. I loved, 
you know, cheers and moonlighting and lots of other stuff that many people loved at the time. We talked to some guests on our show who point to a parent's divorce or a childhood trauma that really kicked off depression, at least made a dormant disease become much more pronounced. But Linda had a happy home, supportive, loving. Depression can happen regardless. Linda says she had depression and anxiety to contend with growing up, but she didn't realize she had both at the time. I don't know that I ever thought about anxiety when I was younger. I think depression, when you're young, depression is an easier thing to conceptualize because you put it in terms of feeling sad. Um, I think anxiety for me was largely masked by feeling sad and feeling worried all the time. But I just thought of it as being that I was somebody who worried. And, you know, there were other people in my family who were worriers. That was sort of a, a, a somewhat classic family trait. Adding to this was the fact that Linda weighed noticeably more than the average kid. A lot of mental health stuff when I was growing up was masked by the fact that I was um, struggling so much with my weight all the time. I've I've struggled with my weight all my life. And when you are a fat kid, every time somebody looks at you and you say you're unhappy, the answer is, well, of course you are. We're going to put you on a diet and then you'll be happy and then you'll feel better. And so I don't think I really came to terms with the complexity of mental health stuff until I was old enough to understand that there was a possibility that I had kind of been addressing it backwards for most of my life. And what I really needed to do was deal, deal with the, the anxiety and the depression first. <laughs> and that might make it possible to break what were essentially a lot of kind of self-soothing ritual habits about, you know, eating and stuff. We talk a lot about stigma on this program, the societal misconceptions about mental illness, the subtly enforced notion that you shouldn't talk about it. Linda Holmes was dealing with that, plus the stigma against being heavy, that the person who's heavy must be unhappy and that the unhappiness is caused by the weight. In Linda's case, the problem wasn't the weight. It was the depression. She realized that later on, not, unfortunately, in ninth grade when the depression really kicked in. I went through a really tough period of just feeling really sad and dark. And one of the difficulties with it was I also was very conscious. I felt like I was wearing black on purpose. And I felt like I was walking around with my head down on purpose. And I felt so guilty because I felt very, very sad, but I also felt guilty that I was trying to get people to notice that I felt sad. But that is the first memory that I have of what I now think was probably a depressive episode. Did it get noticed? Yes, it did. It did. And, you know, I went to a couple counselors when I was in high school, but I was not prepared to talk to them about very much of what I was thinking. And if you're not going to do it, it's really hard for anybody to help you. And I was not prepared at that time to talk to them, for example, about the weight stuff and things like that. So I would be talking to them about how I felt, but it was really hard to reach me, I think, at that time in that way. Um, it did get noticed. I had wonderful—I I, I was an incredibly loved kid. Um, you know, my family was incredibly loving. I had incredibly loving teachers. I remember— 
one of my teachers, uh, who was extremely uh, important in my life, um, giving me a writing assignment during that time. And I wrote it. And she wrote back on the paper, she wrote, you may feel like your feet are in cement, but you are writing. And I think she knew that I was somebody where writing was kind of going to save my life and always be a, a real um, a real rescue for me. Linda wasn't always as isolated as it might sound. She had people around her, but it got, let's say, complicated sometimes. I had a lot of friends in high school. I had I had fun friends in high school, but I think I always felt like I was in a group of friends. I was in it. I hung out with them. I had a good time, but I always felt like I was sort of the extra person, I think. Um, if if you were going on a class trip and everybody had to sort of pair up for rooms, I would always feel like somehow I would be the one who wound up the odd person. I mean, I also was the kid when I was younger. Um, I got a, a note taped to my gym locker uh, signed by most of the girls in my class. And as I said, private school, small school, everybody knew each other. Most of the girls in my class signed a note uh, that said, you know, you are an ugly, dumb jerk. Nobody likes you. Signed all of their names, taped it to my locker. I <laughs> Kids that age are so weird because, you know, some uh, of them what immediately— What age is this that, you're, that this happened? Uh, fifth grade. Fifth, fifth grade. grade. Some of them immediately came and started apologizing and things like that. Felt terrible. And the next year in sixth grade, this is really funny. This is an interesting uh, excavation of a lot of stuff that I haven't talked about in a long time. But um, the next year in sixth grade, <laughs> we had a class dance. And um, uh, I was really surprised because we went to this dance. And at a sixth grade dance, you know, you don't really have dates, everybody just goes. Um, and I got out of this dance and I was saying to my friends, like, you know, it, I was really impressed because, like, I thought I was going to be by myself. But, you know, actually a bunch of of uh, boys came and asked me to dance and I danced and had a good time. And then I found out later that some of the girls in my class, some of those same girls who signed that note, had uh, paid <laughs> Wow! some of the boys in my class to ask me to dance. True story. So there are a couple of those like really bruising, horrible middle school stories. And yet and yet what I was isn't it terrible? It's it's psychotic. It sounds that's not the right word to use in this context, but it sounds it sounds like you would have to be a deeply disturbed person to do this to anyone. And yet it happens in middle school all the time. Yeah, I'm traumatized just hearing you say a, talk about it now. I'm going to have to. Right. Kind and I, and there are there are people who were involved in all of this who I am still Facebook friends with, who I see their kids and I say, oh, hi, your kids are so cute. And they say, oh, I heard you on the radio and it's all fine. You know what I mean? But I but I think every one of those things I could still, you know, um, figuratively speaking, I could still roll up my sleeve and show you the little mark on me. There are a couple surprising elements to that story. Not the cruelty of children. Sadly, they can be horrible, especially to someone who might look different from the average. But surprise number one is how Linda describes kids that age. Listen back to that. Kids that age are so weird. Weird. She says weird. She doesn't say evil or cruel or sadistic, just weird. 
Would you be that polite if that had happened to you? I would not. Surprise number two is that Linda is still Facebook friends with them and says that it's all fine. She forgave them, I guess. I wonder if that is due in part to television and all the time that she has spent watching it, talking about it and writing about it, thinking about it. We are a story-driven culture, and if you spend time writing about all those stories, maybe you can see all the character complexity, and you can see a story arc. You can see how redemption is possible. So, adolescent Linda Holmes has a loving family, a body that doesn't fit the societal image of acceptable, alleged friends with a cruel streak, and depression. It adds up to not being okay with who she was. I thought, I'm a good person, but I just have to fix everything. I think I always had this this dream that I would become beautiful and become cool and... Uh, kind of reinvent myself. And I think I I think I tried to reinvent myself over and over again, probably into my 30s. Uh-huh. Um, I was sort of addicted to the idea of of fresh starts. Um, and when you talk about compartmentalizing, I, I think I was sort of addicted to the idea of walling off all of my um, struggles and mistakes and all those like sad memories and just being a completely new person who hadn't done anything yet. Um, and that's a really, I think, tempting thing uh, for a lot of people. And it was for me. Don't fix the engine, just put a new paint job on the car and run it through the car wash. Well, it was more like, it was more like I felt like there was some other person that I was supposed to be and that if I worked really hard, it wasn't a matter of it being cosmetic. It was a matter of that if I worked really hard, I could just decide to be this other version of myself that would be much better and um, much more, you know, uh, interesting and not talk all the time, which I did. Um and and would be better at getting along with people and wouldn't uh you know wouldn't have all these these things would keep my room clean all the time and i had this idea that there was somebody else that i was going to eventually turn into and and that never happens when did that finally break down you say you got to your 30s still with that thinking <laughs> I mean, I think I think it finally broke down. Uh, uh, God, it's probably when I when I got serious about therapy, which was only maybe only maybe five years ago. So um, I think getting into therapy, that's one of the many reasons why it was it was so incredibly important. Somehow she wasn't destroyed by that thing with the note on the locker or the sixth grade dance. In fact, she did quite well. Linda went to Oberlin College and later moved on to Lewis and Clark College in Portland for law school. 
what form did the depression take when you went away to school? Like, how did it affect you? How did you know it was happening? One of the ways that it affected me was that I lived in squalor. And it took a long time for me to understand that in much the same way that it's very hard to take care of yourself physically if you don't value yourself, it's also very hard to take care of where you live. So my dorm room was always a mess. Um I think if you went back and looked at my life at that time, you would just see signs all over the place um, that I only in retrospect really understand. Like what? Um, Like a real, well, in my freshman year, drinking a lot, um, which fortunately I had just a completely different group of friends in my sophomore year. And instead of drinking, they played bridge. Um <laughs> which was much healthier for me. Because um, they were all 85 years old. <laughs> it's, you know, it's the funniest thing. You just, you bump into who you bump into. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there were a lot of, there were a lot of difficulties at that time just figuring out what kind of classes I went. Like I was taking a lot of math and science and stuff that was never going to be right for me. But I, you know, I, I never took any writing classes in college because in order to take writing classes, you had to submit your writing to the professor and get approved. And I was too nervous to do that. So I never took any creative writing in college at all. If you get through Oberlin and can get admitted to law school, and I understand it wasn't right away that you went to law school, but you did well enough to grade-wise. So so it sounds like the depression was at least somewhat contained. It was, yeah, it was manageable. And I want to say, you know, depression in my life, I've been quite fortunate in the sense that it's been a, it's been a kind of a, a major drag on my ability to be happy, but it's never been, I've never felt that it was life-threatening, and I've never felt that it was – it made me completely unable to function for any time longer than maybe a couple of weeks at a time. So I've been very fortunate in that regard. And, yes, I I still functioned in college. I did really well in law school. Um, You can can do a lot while you're still – just, you know, the outside is is the duck above the water and the other stuff is all the duck feet underwater. All the paddling. Do you think it was a product of the severity of the depression that you happened to have or was it things that you were doing that managed to still make you productive? No, it was just it was just luck. I think it was the severity of what I happened to have. In fact, when I eventually um, when I eventually went on on medication successfully, which was only about a year ago, um, when I talked to the doctor, she said, you know, we talked about kind of mild depression that's with you all the time that just makes it really hard for you to be happy and then occasionally dips into this terrible, terrible um, funk. But mine on the depression side is not that is not that bad compared to what a lot of people have to deal with. Sort of low grade churn kind of thing. Yeah. Dysthymia, she calls it. Um, The kind of the, you know, you operate at a base level of like a six instead of an eight. (laughs) Right. Right. It's it's not as severe, but it's more persistent than. Right. And a lot of people like me, go a really long time without getting it treated because it doesn't present itself quite as unmistakably um, 
as as it can be if it's more severe. Do you think that's what you've had all along, the dysthymia? Yeah, probably. Yeah. It's hard to tell because the world is sort of horrible. So when you feel like the world is horrible, you don't know if you're depressed or merely accurate. Well, and the other thing is, if it's been the way you've felt your whole life, you have very little com- to compare it to. No, People rarely sit down and say, how do you feel most of the time on a scale of 1 to 10? Um, because the doctor said to me before, you know, this was after I had had kind of this explosive depressive episode that had ultimately gotten me to a psychiatrist. But um, when that finally happened and she said, you know, before this happened for most of your life, how happy do you feel like you were most of the time? And I said, oh, six. You know, and this is all out of 10. And she sort of said, you know, most people say it about an eight or nine. Uh, when they're when they're feeling good. And I was surprised by that. So, you know, go figure. After law school, Linda made the move that most podcast hosts and entertainment writers do. She moved to Minnesota to work as a lawyer at the state capitol, knee deep in all the legal work required for legislation. But in her spare time, she started writing TV recaps for a site called Television Without Pity. I would read you one of her recaps, but they were like 10,000 words long. It was a different time for the Internet. It was pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook. You didn't have to write the Internet yourself. You could just read it. And 10,000-word recaps of The Amazing Race made perfect sense. Anyway, that led to more writing and more writing and more and more. And then eventually I was spending enough time on writing, uh, which I kind of slid into, that I went to a part-time law job um, at a different – in a different part of government doing appellate work. Um, And appellate work is all writing and doing oral arguments. So I loved it. It was great. It was just – it was just super, super hardcore nerd arguing, which I loved. Um, But I still – you know, writing was more and more kind of taking over my, my life. Um, and then Television Without Pity got bought by NBC Universal, and they set us up um, in uh, offices in 30 Rock. And I got a chance to go to New York, so I quit lawyering and went to New York. It's such an odd uh, change <laughs> in career. Did uh-huh. it feel like you were answering your true calling or what? There's no way that I wouldn't have done it, although I understand now in retrospect how unusual of a move it seemed like to other people, particularly since I had a law degree and everything. But I remember the last day at my legal job, I remember this woman saying to me, well, you know, I I, I wish you so much luck. This is so exciting. You know, I have a nephew who did almost this exact thing. He quit his job and he went to New York and he became a writer. And, uh, you know, he's completely broke and it was a total disaster, but I'm sure that <laughs> won't happen to you. And I just wish you so much luck. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah. Well, and the funny thing is it didn't really work out because, you know, when small sites are bought by big companies, very often they do change in ways that are significant. And so I only stayed a year in New York at that job. Um, And so in the long run, it didn't, quote unquote, work out. But it's probably the only thing I loved enough to quit lawyering. This idea of being a legislative lawyer in Minnesota and then writing about TV in New York. Why does one do that? I mean, you could argue that because depression makes you devalue yourself, it would make you think any job you have is not worth doing. Depression lies, after all. It tells you that you're dumb and bad, so if you have a job, that must be a dumb and bad job, so you leave it. 
It's like comedy legend and possibly depressed person Groucho Marx said, I don't want to belong to any club that will accept people like me as a member. But I don't think that's what's happening here with Linda. The first thing Linda Holmes talked about in this interview was reading and about how she had an idea that writing, that the written word would save her life. More with Linda Holmes in a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness, not just depression, all kinds of mental illnesses. We have fun on this show. We make some jokes. We have some laughs. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying the disease a bit. But let's not kid ourselves. Depression is a serious disease. But the good news, people can and do get better. They get help. That's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use. What to say, what not to say. Stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, or other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org. You can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with Linda Holmes from Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's very popular pop culture podcast. Linda is a former legislative attorney who long ago quit her lawyer job to move to New York and write about TV shows. She followed her bliss, discovered the color of her parachute. She carped some DM. Depression hung around. Anxiety was an ongoing presence. But that's not all. This entire time in the background, there is this tendency to become fixated and obsessed with um, certain kinds of small things, obsessed with the idea that I hadn't turned in a piece of paperwork and I would lie awake in the middle of the night thinking that I hadn't turned something in. And it's not in the usual, like, well, yeah, everybody has that experience. You're kind of lying awake worrying. Now I'm talking about, I was supposed to turn this in two years ago. What if I didn't and someone is waiting to sue me now over something that happened two years ago. You know what I mean? These things where I would start to realize there was something about it that was not right. Um, and when I was about, actually before I left uh, Minnesota, there was an incident where I realized that I was spending time thinking about things like, not just I'm worried about whether someone is going to break into the house, but I am worried that someone has broken into the house and moved things around. And it was... I knew it was – the word I'm going to use is weird just because it's the word I used in my own head. I knew it was weird. And I went to see a therapist, and she referred me to a guy who specialized in anxiety and panic. And um, <laughs> and I went to see him, and he basically said uh, – he was kind of doing intake, and he said, uh, are you dating? And I said, No. And he said, have you ever dated very much? And I said, no. And he said, why do you think that is? And I went through a few different explanations, but it was clear that he had, you know, an answer that he was waiting for. And I said, you know, it doesn't help that I've been fat my whole life, I'm sure. And he was kind of like, there it is. And what he basically said to me was, I don't think you have anxiety. I just, but I would be happy to put you on a diet. That's what he told me. And that probably delayed anxiety treatment for me for roughly 10 years. Because then I thought, well, I guess, I guess not. Um, 
And it got stranger and stranger, and I started having, you know, I had more and more trouble with kind of um, consuming intrusive thoughts and anxiety and worry and inability to concentrate. And I would lose an entire day to one upsetting intrusive thought, for example. Um, And I knew it was not, I knew it was not good, but I did not know what to do about it. You didn't have any strategy for what to do when you were in that situation? I tried a lot of different things. One of my strategies was I used to stop and write write down everything that I was feeling and all the reasons why I didn't think it was rational. Um, but the problem is for me, when I'm having what I, I think of as like anxiety brain, what it feels like to me is that I am inside a little house with anxiety brain. It's just me and anxiety brain and we're in the house and I cannot get away from it. And rational brain still exists, and I can hear it, but it's outside, and it's pounding on the it's pounding on the doors and the windows, <laughs> trying to get through with a rational explanation of why what I'm worrying about doesn't make any sense. And once I eventually addressed all of this, and now being on medication for it, it's the other way around. I still hear anxiety brain; it's still there. And there are times when it's still trying to get in, but I am more in the house with rational brain. And so I'm more able to kind of stay in that place, if that makes sense. You have ways of locking the door. Yeah. And a lot of it is, you know, chemical. I think a a, a change in chemistry has locked that door. Television Without Pity closed down, and Linda was hired by NPR, which was looking to do more pop culture coverage. That was in 2008. Writing a pop culture blog led to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, which soon became a big hit. Now, Linda loves working at NPR, loves it. But again, loving your great job doesn't cure depression. Neither does having a great family or getting into law school or following your bliss to be a writer or just waiting it out. That's not how it works. We should get T-shirts printed up that say that's not how it works because I say that on the show so often. Anyway, Linda Holmes. Roughly a year ago, so late 2016, um, there had been some run up to the fact that something with me was not quite right. Um, I had had a very painful fight with one of my closest friends who I really don't fight with. And it was one of those things where you don't understand how it started and you feel terrible about it. Um, and and I knew something was just not right. And then at some point, I just went off the I just went off the, the rails. Um, what did that look like when you went off the rails? Crying all the time, um, unable to keep it together at work, uh, not very functional. Um, uh, I remember very acutely, I remember the feeling, uh, I cannot ever imagine having another good day. Um, And fortunately for me, I vocalized some of that to to friends. and I had two different friends, you know, one of whom who said, you know, one of whom said, I think you're having a medical emergency. And one of whom uh, I was sitting talking to her in her cube and I was crying and 
Uh, and she reached over and she put her hand on my knee and she said, uh, I don't want to nag, but I am going to bring this up with you until you call someone because you need to call someone. And I did it that day. Um, and I sobbed into a very nice doctor's answering machine. <laughs> uh, and I went to see her and she was very, very helpful and uh, you know, I had been in therapy for a long time, and I had made a lot of progress and learned a lot about a lot of different things, but it had not really addressed the the depression and anxiety itself, the, the core of it. And being treated by uh, the psychiatrist has been really, really, really helpful for that. And I remember once the medication kind of started to kick in, I remember thinking, you know, oh, this is how other people feel all the time. You know, um, and it was really in one way, it was so incredibly freeing and wonderful. And on the other hand, it was so sad because I wished that I had um, paid more attention to it sooner and that I had been more straightforward with other people and with doctors and things like that about what I needed and more confident about what I needed. What did the previous therapy do? What were you working on? You know, the way that I envisioned myself with my friends and and the way that I thought about my career and the my general tendency to feel responsible for for making other people happy, which, you know, is is a very real thing. And I think distinct in a lot of ways from from depression and anxiety. It's just a thing. It's a it's a thing I needed help with. And therapy was wonderful for that. And therapy was wonderful, wonderful for helping me be more assertive and helping me um, tell people what I wanted. Um, it was wonderful for a whole bunch of things. It just didn't there just were certain things it couldn't reach. And I had explained to my therapist you know, he knew some of these things. I remember telling him about a vacation that I was on, and I drove through a tunnel, um, and you were supposed to have your lights on when you went through the tunnel. And I turned my lights on as I was in the tunnel. And later, I got fixated on the idea that uh, I had maybe caused a car accident and not even realized it because I startled someone by turning my lights on. Now, as I tell you this now, it sounds so strange to me, but I really, really got worried about it. And I told him that, and I think he knew that that was an intrusive thought and, and you know, not a healthy thought. And we talked a lot about those kinds of things, but I, but I, those kinds of things didn't resolve until um, medication for me. Until you got your chemistry squared away. For me. And I think, you know, the most important thing, one of the reasons why it's hard to talk about all this stuff, there are a bunch of reasons why it is. But one of the reasons why it is, is, you know, everybody's different. And it's the same thing with weight. Like everybody's, everybody's different in how they got to where they are. And you never want to sound like you're saying, I did this, so do this. Um, it's just that for me, I know that when I went to friends and said, I think I'm depressed, and they said, you need a doctor. And I didn't feel in my own head like I did. I think the fact that I had heard, you know, people like Ali Brosh and Jenny Lawson and Rob Delaney and you and all these other people talk about depression and how it works, I think it made me more able to imagine that maybe my friends knew better than I did that I needed to go to the doctor. Ali Brosh is the writer, cartoonist, and blogger behind Hyperbole and a Half. Jenny Lawson was on our show a few weeks ago. Rob Delaney is a comedian and star of the Amazon show Catastrophe. Look them all up. Soak up their work. That's your homework. 
Linda Holmes is on meds now, and they don't make her all zonked out, and they don't make her happy all the time. They make her, like other people, are able to be without meds. They make life a more level playing field, so she can focus on the new season of Black Mirror, or what Baby Driver was all about, or what Adam Driver is all about. Interestingly, I I have had this really remarkable year uh, since that point, even though it was such a difficult experience. I I wanted my entire life to write a novel, and I finally did. Um, I uh, wanted for a long time to move to a better apartment where I'd be happier, and I got that done too. Um, There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of hope. Uh, going forward, even though that experience was extremely difficult and even though the process of, you know, getting used to medication and everything is never uh, entirely without its challenges either. And she got a better doctor. She was very, very perceptive about me from the beginning. Although when I came to see her, I was sort of a bag of tears. So it's it wasn't too hard to tell that something was profoundly wrong. It was more a question of was it profoundly situationally wrong or was it profoundly chronically wrong or what? Um, but what I did notice, and it's it's sort of a similar story to that, the second time I came to see her, when I had kind of been on on medication for a few weeks, the second time I came to see her, I came and sat down and she asked me a couple questions and she said, your voice is completely different. I cannot stress enough that I think I would have much more experience talking about what I did about depression and what I did about anxiety if I didn't have 20 years of experience, 30 years of experience, 40 years of experience talking about what I tried to do about dieting. Um and so the other one of the other reasons why I try to talk to people about this as openly as I can is that, you know, for me, it's not just a matter of having depression and having anxiety. It's a matter of encouraging people to just be on the lookout for those things, even if other things, you know, seem to be prominent in what's bothering you or, you know, what seems to be a challenge of your life or whatever. Yeah, I was going to ask about the the dieting and the body issues because— Depression and anxiety are kind of, you know, abstract. They're 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 intangible to some extent. How have you uh, kind of worked out those issues, or on your way to working those issues out? Well, I am. Um, what I have worked out is that I am much more likely to to kind of feel better about the way I look and things like that than I used to. Um, my weight has not changed a whole lot yet. Um, One of the reasons for that is, and this is one of the real sad things about this whole situation, this is one of the few things that is persistently sad to me, is that when you are... um, when you are at a really high weight for a long time, then when you start to try to address it, it's super, super, super difficult for a bunch of reasons. It's not just a matter of if you break your habits of kind of anxiety eating and stuff like that, at least in my case. It's not just a matter of then everything will kind of restore. A lot of times you've sort of screwed up your anxiety, your uh, metabolism at that point. You know, I am a person who lost 100 pounds and gained a lot of it back. Um it, it plays a lot of havoc on your metabolism. You can't decide to get up one day and be like, I'm going to be a runner if one of the effects of that on you, as it is on me, is that you don't have great knees anymore. So once it happens, reversing it is a lot harder than getting there was. And 
So that's a real, like, that continues to be a super, super hard battle for me. And I think the difference is I feel much closer to to being able to deal with it. And I would also say that my, my approach to it is much more logical and much less emotional than it used to be. One of the reasons why I was really excited to move to a closer apartment is that I used to have a really long commute, which made me really prone to drive through dinner because um, I would get home so late. And nothing takes the nothing takes you out of drive through bad habits like not driving, you know. So it, my approach to it, like I said, is much more problem solving and much less emotional, I think, which I think in the end will be good for me. The lessons of Linda Holmes life. Get some walks in, see a doctor, quit your job in the Minnesota legislature, and be careful how you look at depression. Depression isn't necessarily a symptom. Sometimes it's the problem, the problem you need to tackle before moving on to the other problems that stem from it. I asked Linda if writing really did end up saving her life. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think writing... um Writing really was one of the things that I threw myself into um, when I was first being treated, you know, a year ago. Writing is one of the things that I really buried my head in because um, because I understand words and I understand sentences and everything else that I don't understand um, can be very scary. But writing and words are not scary to me. It can be intimidating, but that's not the same thing. It can be imposing as a task, but I love it very much and. I've always, always loved writing and words, and I think it's always been something that I could go to that made me feel like myself, which is one of the hardest parts um, of depression and particularly of anxiety for me is when you feel like the the impulses that you're having are not n natural to you. They don't feel n normal. Writing is something that always made me feel normal and made me feel like myself. What do you know now about mental health that you wish you knew a long time ago? The thing that took me the longest about getting treatment for mental health was not wanting to feel like I had said, I give up, I am broken. Because I think my whole life I had this dream about fixing myself by my own strength of will. What I learned is that the one thing that could help me was the thing that I had somehow classified as giving up. I wish I had known that for good and for ill, I would still feel like myself. I still have my personality. I still have good days and bad days. I still feel like myself in all of the good ways and, and some of the tough ways. I'm still me. I still talk too much. Ask anyone <laughs> who's ever met me. I still talk too much. I still, I have to go clean my desk right now. It's a total mess. I am still that person. Wait, you're out of squalor then. You're no longer living in squalor. Well, that's the thing. It's not squalor. It's just clutter. That's ah, a big, important difference right is, there. Squalor is. is depression. Clutter is just a busy mind. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Kate Moose is executive producer. Our recording engineer for this episode was Johnny Vince Evans, and our technical directors this time around were Cameron Wiley and Corey Schreppel. Christina Lopez is our social media and web demigod. Thanks also to Nate Toby. Our theme song is called Pagliacci. It was written and performed by rock and roll star Rhett Miller, who is our good and dear friend. Much more about Rhett is at his website, rhettmiller.com. You can also look up the old 97s because they are an enjoyable rock band for which Rhett is the singer. 
If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The 8255 also spells talk. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information to check out for yourself or for someone else. Starting a conversation about mental health and mental illness can get a little awkward, but Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say, stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. We're on Twitter at THW of D. That's T-H-W-O-F-D. You can write to us. We have electric mail. Thwad, T-H-W-O-D, at AmericanPublicMedia.org. And we're on the World Wide Web with a World Wide Website, HilariousWorld.org. Over at our Facebook page, we have all sorts of great conversations going on, photos, videos, great way to interact with your fellow Thwadballs. Hey, write a review of us for Apple Podcasts, won't you? And subscribe, subscribe to this podcast. Apparently, the more buttons you push, the better it is for us to reach more people, which is what we want. On our next episode, hip-hop mogul and host of the Combat Jack show, Reggie Osei. He passed away in December. I talked to him in October. I constantly had to be on. I had to be on in the office. I had to be, you know, on professionally. When I was home, I had to be on. So there was no off. There was no, there was no break. There was no point where I could just heal or just, you know, regroup. And there was, you know, at the time, I didn't know what I was experiencing. So I didn't know. Once again, it wasn't that I was, I knew that I was suffering from something. It was like, what's wrong with me? So every day I found myself challenging myself to go harder when I had nothing to fuel me to go harder. I'm John Moe. Bye now. <laughs>